0: Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 63, Lessons Not Learned. Last time, we saw General Zhukov, with Stalin's blessing, launch his carefully planned and well-supplied offensive. The objective was not simply to take back the 10-mile area between the Halha River and the town of Nomaham, but rather to literally wipe out all enemy troops therein. Soviet Russia needed its hands free for the western part of their country, given the tension between the crafty, land-hungry Germans and the feisty Polish. Who knew what would happen there, where the final line would be drawn, but more importantly, what would happen after the conflict was settled? Would German forces then be on the Russian border? No, Stalin needed A free hand he needed, this question of where the boundary really was out in the east, settled to his satisfaction. The Russian attack had started on August 20th, and for the last three days, things had gone Zhukov's way on the ground, most notably around the flanks and even in the air. But the Japanese believed those forces had to be tired and therefore susceptible to a counterattack which was planned to start on the morning of August 24th. The other good piece of news for the Japanese was that they still held the Fui Heights. It would be the anchor that allowed the center line, now the only other part of the line that still existed, to swing forward and push the Russians back to the Haha. And though this might not have been a real possibility, Zhukov was thinking roughly the same thing. If his attack was to continue, if the Japanese center was to be pushed back and broken up, then the hill had to be taken. If not, then if his center advanced, the Japanese on the hill could come down and get in behind his men. No, the heights had to fall. For the last three days, the heights had been pounded by the artillery of Colonel Alexinko's northern force. But holding out, were some 800 men, under the command of Colonel Aoki, his a mixture of two infantry companies, one cavalry, one armored, and one combat engineer company, along with three artillery batteries. The heights would not be recognizable to anyone who had been there a week ago, beyond the bunkers that still stood. Such was the result of the shelling it took. But in between the pockmarked ground, the defenders' barbed wire netting, and trench works had kept the Russian infantry from gaining the top, no matter the damage done by their comrades' guns. Indeed, the Russians had tried to storm the heights several times in the last few days, but only ended up with more dead for their pains. The end result of this brave defiance by the men on the heights was that Zhukov could not press on with his attack. With his impatience growing, Zhukov got Colonel Alexenko on the phone on August 23rd. He told the subordinate to storm and take the heights right now. Alexenko expressed his opinion that the heights could not be taken, to which Zhukov expressed himself. During the diatribe that would see the colonel dismissed, the term, and please excuse my clatching here, Useless bag of shit was shouted, though it was not the strongest negative comment used. Now in charge of taking the heights was Alexenko's chief of staff. But when Zukov called back a few hours later to get a progress report, the former chief of staff replied that the attack had not started yet. So he was cussed out and sacked to be replaced by one of Zukov's staff officers. The attack got under way the moment the man arrived during the night of August 23rd, but being from the general staff, the new leader of the attacking force was able to call upon additional forces, including an airborne regiment, more artillery, and a detachment of flame-throwing tanks. An artillery attack preceded the assault, hoping not to be dismissed as well. The new commander had the artillery firing. Two shells every second. The Japanese could only dig in and wait out the bombardment. But within a very short time, the last of the Japanese guns on the hill were taken out. Now there was nothing to stop the flame throwing tanks from making for the top. The Japanese troops were down to their sidearms and grenades, so they fought off the Russians with these. But by the morning of August 24th, Colonel Aoki was down to just 200 men from his original 800. The territory held by the Japanese atop the hill shrank. The Russians captured the eastern top of the mountain as they had been attacking from all sides. Now the Japanese survivors were trapped. Aoki gathered his officers to assess their situation. They had little ammunition but even less food and water. Still, the question was, what was to be done? Yet the officers looked to Aoki for guidance. His reply was that he was ordered to hold the hill to the very last man. So that was what he was going to do. He then replied that he had brought them together to figure out how best to do that. The men, glancing at each other, said that that line of thought was simply, a waste of manpower, and would not change the immediate situation. To which Aoki attempted to take out his gun and kill himself, but was restrained. The men pleaded with their colonel, but he did not have orders to advance in a different direction. Yet he did not want to see the rest of his men killed. There was no thought of being captured. They all would have killed themselves before that could be allowed to happen it was decided they would head east. Those unable to make the journey were given a grenade of the few they had left. If they were to die, it was best to take a few enemy soldiers with them. Waiting until full darkness of August 24th, the remaining men slipped out. That they were able to get away was not due to their woodcraft, but rather the overall situation, which had changed drastically by then. The Japanese counterattack to push back the Soviet center line was supposed to start just before dawn of August 24th. Yet, there were so few trucks had by the 23rd Division that many of the men called up got there late. Some didn't make it at all, as they could not find their way to their jump-off points in the darkness. So, of the few men who were supposed to take part in this offensive, they actually moved forward with less than planned, The counterattack, such as it was, did not start until after 9.30 in full daylight, but the Japanese attackers caught a break when a fog rolled in. The soldiers couldn't see the Russian artillery, so it was surmised the gunners couldn't see them. But as the men of the undermanned 72nd Regiment moved toward a group of scrub, they were amazed to see it start to move, some to the right, another part of it to the left. And now, directly in the counter-attacking troops' path, was a group of Soviet tanks. Yet the large guns did not fire on the men. Instead, they raced south of the Japanese, who were now trapped, if they chose to continue moving forward. It was then the fog rolled away, exposing a very large Soviet force with massed artillery. Japanese guns suddenly opened up to support the counterattack, but an even heavier Soviet barrage was their response. Kobayashi and Morita, the leaders of the counterattack, not having permission to retreat, dug down into the soft sand. This might have helped against any shells that landed near them, but none came. That was because the path was being kept clear, so a second Soviet tank force could move against the men. The tanks raced at the men. These were the first prototype T-34s, which had a 76mm gun and, at the time, was the most powerful tank in the world. Some of the other tanks coming at them were the BT-57 tanks the Japanese had run up against before, and knew how to take them out. But they would find that these models had been modified. Zukov had planned for this as well. These BT-7s ran on diesel, which could not be so easily set aflame. What's more, a wire mesh had been placed over their ventilation grill and exhaust manifold, so when the brave young Japanese troops ran up to them, and no one questioned their bravery, they found there was no way to push in explosives or gasoline bombs, so the men ran back to their holes, waiting for orders to withdraw, which did not come until sunset. By then, both regiments had suffered at least 50% casualties. This, and the taking of the free Heights on the 24th, ended any thoughts of the Japanese getting their revenge attack. Or so it should have. On August 25th, with the Russians in control of the battlefield, Soviet units were sent from the Fui Heights, southeast, to set up a blocking position just north of Nomaham. They complemented the other Soviet troops stationed just south of the city. Still, other forces came at the remaining Japanese soldiers of the line. In very short order, the once-defensive line was cut up into three encircled groups. Kwongtung headquarters had wanted to send the rest of the 7th Division to relieve the embattled men. But as they were spread out all over Manchuria, watching the other Soviet forces to the east, and with their extremely limited transportation, no one could be moved in time to make a difference. The Russians brought up even more men to strengthen their hold on the three trapped enemy groups. Then the attack started. Some were repulsed, others not. But each time, the three groups became smaller, the land they held shrinking. The few Japanese units who had 120 millimeter guns were shooting shells as fast as they could to keep the Russian armor back. But soon the guns became so heated their forms expand, so the spent shells could not eject on their own. They had to be caressed out with a stick. But even these attacks against the remaining Japanese guns were a faint of sorts, though a powerful one. As the Japanese guns were still all-facing west, Zhukov had units come from behind or on the east and attack the remaining gun teams. The men of the artillery units were expected and required to share the fate of their guns, the soul of their unit, and most did. Few, very few, were able to escape to the south by crossing the Holston Bridge, and then head south by southeast, staying far away from Nomaha. As the outer ring around the three trapped groups was rather large, General Ogisu of the 6th Army had what was left of his reserves two comparatively fresh infantry regiments, an artillery regiment, and a few others, not quite 5,000 men, prepared to hit the circle in its northeast corner. Yet when they attacked on August 27th, they simply did not have the numbers or firepower or air support to break out their brothers. There was nothing for it. General Ogisu had the remains of his 6th Army fall back, about four miles east of Nomaham, where he would be setting up his new headquarters. Also on the 27th, as the relief force tried to punch a hole in Zhukov's ring, The Russians reduced the three pockets of resistance. The Japanese guns were taken out first, from a safe distance, with Zhukov's larger guns. Then the tanks moved in. Yet even in defeat, the Japanese fought like tigers, killing more men than their own numbers. Zhukov was unconcerned. It was still getting the job done. This went on for two days. But in combat, nothing is perfect or complete. Holes appeared in the Russian ring. Some Japanese soldiers managed to slip out at night and head east. The last major group of Japanese troops tried to leave during the night of August 29th, but ran into a Soviet regiment as they made their way to the Holsten Bridge. The Japanese were ordered to surrender. They did not, instead fighting to the last all four hundred of them were killed. Earlier that day of August twenty ninth, Komatsubara, shamed at his failure, decided to kill himself. He made up his will and removed his epaulets and insignia. Just then his phone rang. It was General Ogisu of the Sixth Army, Komatsubara's superior. Ogisu heard what was about to happen, but ordered the general instead to gather as many men as he could and head east. He did so, but was still determined to end his shame by ending his life. Komatsu staff could only round up some 400 men, but they were soon all heading east. This trek just happened to coincide with the Russian army standing down for a rest. They had been fighting for 10 days, and for their vehicles to be refueled and rearmed. The general and his men made it out. but Komatsubara, on several occasions, tried to pull out his sword and kill himself. His arms had to be restrained by younger, stronger men for most of the journey. There was no thought of ever removing his sword. They reached comparative safety on August 31st. On that same day of August 31st, Zhukov informed Moscow, that the land between the Halha and the town of Nomaham had been cleared of enemy troops. From a quick count of bodies, the Japanese had lost between 18,000 and 23,000 men killed or wounded. This did not include the many Manchukuoan deaths. Later, the Japanese would report that Komatsubara's twenty third division had lost seventy six percent of their men. And because these things matter in war, though should not be considered the equal of human lives, the 23rd Division lost the vast majority of its tanks and heavy guns, as well as 150 aircraft. Though the Soviets would not officially admit it, and Zhukov really didn't care, the Soviet 1st Army Group had casualties of just over 25,000 men. 9,700 killed, and just shy of 16,000 wounded. This certainly came, partially, from Zukov's tactics, but credit cannot be taken from the fierceness of the Japanese warriors. Only a country with the population of Russia could lose more men than the enemy, and yet still win the war, as the Germans were to find out some two years later. As Zhukov seemed to have thought out every aspect of this battle, he made sure his men did not cross the border that they recognized, the one near Nomahom. though he could have pushed far and taken much of western Manchuria, for surely there was nothing to stop him. But the more things change, Kwangtung headquarters was, there is no other word for it, enraged when they heard of what happened along the Halha. Those at Hassinkin decided, right then and there, to avenge the deaths of their brothers. They would start an all-out war against the hated USSR. The planning started, immediately. First, they would gather the 7th, 2nd, 4th, and 8th divisions, and put them under the banner of the 6th Army, so it would have the glory of taking revenge. Then they would gather every artillery piece and Manchukuo and send it with the troops. Noting their far fewer tanks, guns, and planes, they decided their best chance of success was to attack at night. They would rush the enemy positions at night, dig in for cover during the day, and attack again the next night, until the Russians were pushed back across the river to the boundary Japan recognized. The attack was to start on September 10th. And then, amazingly, to show how out of touch they were with reality, kwong headquarters notified the army general staff of their plans and requested those back in Tokyo, quote, kindly be prepared to mobilize the entire Japanese army to engage in the decisive struggle against the USSR in the spring, unquote. But those in Tokyo well, most of them, had had enough. The Russians had just beat them. The Germans, Japan's ally, had just signed a non-aggression pact with Soviet Russia. No more could the Kwongtung be allowed to pull the rest of the military into a war where the end result could not be seen. General Nakajima, Deputy Chief of Army General Staff, was sent to Helsinki with Imperial Order 343 which commanded the Kuangtung to only have minimal strength near the hostile area, so a diplomatic solution could be worked out. But after hearing Nakajima out, the leaders of the Kuangtung, mostly their operation section, held to their views and to their idea of how to solve this problem. And they did so with such passion and belief in their cause, and pending victory, that Nakajima was won over to their side. He verbally agreed to the September 10th offensive.